podcast world what's up chad belding back at you another episode of this life ain't for everybody still coming at you from the cactus league spring training 2020 ish spring training ish i keep saying that because it's just a weird feeling we got off the plane all games canceled uh looks like the season's going to be pushed back for opening day we've been coming to spring training every year for eight or nine years now in a row and this is the first time this has happened just a weird atmosphere down in the phoenix area of arizona the cactus league Today, we are joined by, I consider him, I don't know, maybe the new Pete Rose of Major League Baseball, (laughs) Charlie Hustle, Chuck Nasty. His name is Charlie Blackman. He's a starting outfielder for the Colorado Rockies All-Star in 2019. Hit a bomb in the All-Star game, correct? I did. Yeah. yeah. How does that, how does it feel when you... I guess is the same. Is it like when you hit a bomb off of a wooden bat, Charlie, is it kind of the same as like, you just, you don't even know what happened. It's just, you don't really feel it. The, the sweet spot on those things are so tiny that, that, you know, when you don't hit it right. Right. It's like, it doesn't feel good. It, it'll, it'll hurt your hands a little bit, but, but when you do it just right, I mean, it's an incredible feeling. Um, you know, you've hit it hard. Right. And it, and it feels it doesn't feel like a wooden bat anymore. It feels like you've got a, a serious club doing some damage. So uh, it's cool to hit a homer. It's cool to hit one in the All-Star game. Um, unfortunately, my first thought, though, in that All-Star game was, man, this is the All-Star game. It doesn't count. You know, like <laughs> it would be cool if like to help help our team win the game. But it, it doesn't count for the Rockies, unfortunately. Right. But it would if you if the Rockies were to make the playoffs or the World Series. Right. If you do win the All-Star game, is it still that you get home field advantage in the playoffs? Or how does it work if the, the National League wins the All-Star game? That is was it how it is. And I should absolutely know if they've changed it. And I don't think they've changed it i think well i think the the all-star game does not decide that anymore i think it's based on like what you do in the season who's the higher seed so there's i don't know if i I thought i heard something too that they changed so is the all-star game just a a crowd-pleasing deal now there's nothing no strategy behind it obviously you want to win but you know it i feel like it's different than other than other sports, right? I think the NBA All Star Game is more of just a hey, like let's just everybody have fun and and uh, like you know nobody's playing real hard, nobody wants to get hurt, and, and yeah, like I'm not trying to like blow out in the All Star Game or anything, but at the same time, it seems like guys want to win, right? Guys are 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 in the All Star Game because they're the most competitive guys in the world, and you can't put them on a baseball field with the best players on the planet and expect them not to try and like outduel each other so um guys want to win uh and usually you only play a little bit right and uh like i'll only play one or two at bats and and the guy behind me who's an all-star or the guy in front of me who's an all you know like also a very good player plays just a little bit and that kind of keeps guys from from getting hurt but you can also like let it eat for for two or three innings as to where you'd normally save up for, for a nine inning game. You said something in there about the best baseball players in the world on the field. And you get to see this on a daily basis, 162 games a year. You're, you're traveling from city to city. There's interleague games. You're in the national league. You're in the NL West. Is there stuff that happens on a daily basis that blows your mind still like you've seen it all in baseball but when you see somebody with an unbelievable play or footwork or is there any like little tiny details that still make you go wow this game's amazing yeah i mean it's the the talent and the ability that these guys have is really all over the map like they're like there's some guys that 
you know, don't run any fast, you know, that no tools, don't run fast, you know, don't have any power that maybe they hit a little bit They're you know, they're pretty good defensively, don't have a strong arm, you know, and these guys are on the field and it's because they have such a strong mental game and they figured out how to be consistent and be healthy and to make their adjustments and, and, and overcome double A AA and triple A and then stick around in the big leagues. And then there's guys that just roll out of bed. I mean, and these are the, like, this is the NASCAR, you know, the NASCAR bodies of the automobile world. Like these guys are explosive and can run and jump and hit the ball a mile. And, and, and it's, it's just like, there's, you know, like I can do a lot of those things. Well, and, and then we have guys on our own team. I'm like, I, I was never that fast. I don't have anywhere close to that amount of juice. I mean, that's an incredible arm. I mean, it's just, these guys just God given, like unbelievable. And, uh, but it's still such a hard game, you know, no matter what background you have. Uh, it's it's really, I mean, it's really the reason why we go out and play 162 games. And then, and then sometimes even like two years ago, like we tied with the Dodgers. Like after six months of playing every day, we still don't know who the best team is. And that's just the beauty of baseball. Yeah, and it's... Um... You, you said it's such a hard game to play. Physically, it's hard because it's such a long season. You endure, you know, you got to stay away from injury. There's so many opportunities on any given day to face an injury, whether it's a hamstring pull or, or you know, a, a rotator cuff strain, whatever it is. It's You might not see a huge injury like a, a football hit or a linebacker crushing somebody, but there's so many like just nagging injuries that keep happening to a baseball player. That on top of the mental approach of the game, that on top of of the physical approach of being able to hit a round object with a round object that's changing planes at 60 feet, six inches away, that's being thrown at different speeds, different arm angles, different arm speeds. What would you classify in your columns of those five tools that you hear about in baseball when you were being looked at before you became a member or a major league baseball player? Did you have them all? You said there's guys that can run faster. There's stronger arms out there. But I don't want you to like, I don't want you to cut slack on you either. I want to hear like, you have a lot of tools and you're starting in right field, which in my opinion that you can assume that's the best arm in the outfield. Most of the time you can still cover the gaps. Um, You're a, you hit from the left side of the plate with a lot of leverage. You got a taller length of your body. You hit the ball on the nails a lot. You hit for high average what would you sit here and tell me that you don't have? Because to me, you have it all. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, I feel like at different times in my career, I've had, I've been good at different things. Uh, I, I kind of, I actually, I backed into division one baseball as a pitcher, uh, you know, went to junior college, was a good enough of a pitcher to end up at Georgia tech. And, and so I obviously had a, you know, a little bit of arm strength there. And then, you know, uh, as I transitioned from pitcher to hitter, I think one of the main things that really got me drafted uh, was my speed. Uh, when I was younger, I was very, very fast. Younger in my career, I was I was really fast. I played center field uh, in one of the biggest parks in the league. Uh, I, you know, stole, tried to steal a lot of bases, had a couple high stolen base seasons. Uh, and then obviously all along, I, I think you're fine tuning your bat, you know, your hit for average tool, which I, I think Ultimately, that's the most important tool. If you can hit for average, you will be on the field somewhere. Uh, and if you're not on the field, you're a DH, right? You you gotta you gotta swing the bat a little bit, and, and that's really what carries most guys. And then I had that 
hit for average tool and, and, and I've been developing it over the course of my career. And then, you know, within the last few years is really when that hit for power came in. And, and I think there's a lot of guys where if they can stick around long enough as an average hitter that they'll learn you know, when to take shots uh, for extra bases or, you know, how to lay off that tough one, one slider. And instead of being one and two, now you're two and one looking to do damage. You know, there's a lot of little nuances uh, that you can't really pick up in minor league baseball that you, you know, you need that big league experience to help you get better at that level and, and then come into the power hitting world. And, and that's, you know, you can stay in the league by hitting for average. You can get paid and become a cornerstone player if you can hit for power. And so ultimately the goal is to be able to mesh those two skills together and then be, you know, good enough at defense to to not have people talk bad about you and you have that <laughs> yes or no is it you see coming up in baseball in my experience there was some left-handed hitters i was a lefty some left-handed hitters would get taken out of the lineup if the pitcher was going to be a lefty did you ever endure this is it does it still mess with you at all is it harder for you to hit a left-handed picture does it mess with your mental approach knowing that you're going to go in there and face a tall lefty that can break off a six slot slider throw 97 is it different for a lefty to face a lefty? Because coming up in baseball, it was always like you're sitting today because they got a lefty on the mound. For some reason, you know, I'm going to chalk it up to there's fewer left-handed people on the planet, right? If you're a left-handed hitter, you see so few left-handed pitchers that it's just a weird angle. It's different. You know, it's not something you see every day. And unfortunately, the first time you see a bunch of left-handed pitchers is usually pro ball or the big leagues, you know, like double triple a, you know, and that's a tough time to be making these adjustments. And, I, you know, I've been able to overcome it a little bit and not have any glaring splits from, you know, versus left-handed or right-handed pitching. And, and that's been able to keep me in the lineup, but I, I do feel more comfortable versus a righty. But if I go back and look at it, I, I have, you know, very comparable average numbers, you know, versus lefties and righties. So why though, the comfort level, is it mental that you're just like, man, it's just a different arm angle. You have more time to react. It's a bigger, a bigger picture. You see it for longer. I don't, I don't, I've never gotten it because if you're going to be in the big leagues, you have to hit them both. But I've, I've talked to guys and I've heard guys say like, it still messes with them a little bit when they know that that night they're going to see a lefty. And I felt that same way in college ball, high school ball that, man, I'd almost defeat myself if it was going to be a lefty on the bump because it was so weird having that ball come from, you know, really behind you and then into the plate on a curveball or whatever. The angles were so much different. It just, it, all, it messed with me. I could do it a little bit, but nowhere near consistency. And I think that it's, it becomes probably just that, like what you're saying is seeing it more and more and getting that comfort level. I think you're just so used to that right-handed angle and, and, and then to know that the left-handed angle is different. And, and like you said, I know it's, it's different. I know it's not going to be what I'm used to. You know, now I'm thinking about it. I think it kind of perpetuates, you know, that that issue. And, and 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 certainly, like guys, some guys don't overcome it. You know, that's why there's the you know the platoon situation. You know, you've got you've got a left-handed hitter and a right-handed hitter, and you're going to just mesh them together on whatever you know whoever's pitching that night, lefty or righty, and they're both going to play you know whatever you know left field for me. And, and you kind of pick the best split from each player, you know, a light or a left-handed hitter versus a righty pitcher and, and my right-handed hitter versus a lefty pitcher and just mesh them together. And, and, you know, we've got all these sabermetrics now. And, you know, if you can't hit lefties, 
you know, you might be subjected to this platoon situation. Is there anything in your game right now that you're working on working out the finer details at this point in your career. I understand that you have these five tools, but it seems to me that the daily would become, all right, I really got to work on that. Is it timing? Is it, is it your right eye dominance? Is it being able to have a good sight picture of the game, making the game smaller, slowing the game down? Is, is there anything that you specifically work on at this stage in your career to go to, to even go to the next level? As I was younger, I would, I would, have a really good idea of things that I would want to change for the next year in my game. I would bite off these big chunks and say, I really want to hit the ball the other way for power, or I really want to improve my speed or arm strength. And, and I would have very specific things that I could go and work on. And now as I get a little bit older, I feel like my physical skills are not going to get way better, right? I'm not going to, be way stronger at age 33 than I was at age 31, right? Uh, I want to maintain and keep, you know, my maintenance up so that I keep all of my baseball skills sharp. But at this point, I'm, I think I'm my, you know, my final frontier is coming through in the clutch. It's being as consistent as I can be. It's, uh, being a great teammate or, recognizing someone else that's having a struggle that I once had and helping them pull through it quicker. You know, I, I think that's now some of the things that I can add from a competitive advantage standpoint to the Rockies that I maybe wasn't adding, you know, four or five years ago when I was really wrapped up in trying to uh, be able to steal third um, or, you know, wrapped up in these much more specific things. When you're talking about go, you know, being 33 compared to 31, have you gotten to a point in your career to where <clears throat> intimidation is never part of it anymore? Do you, because I would think that your ability to cover the strike zone and hit the ball on the nuts as much as you do would have intimidation against a pitcher that has to face you consistently or knows he's coming out of the bullpen to face Charlie Blackman. Is that still part of your game too, to where you have to check yourself of being like, wait a minute. There's no reason to, to overthink this, or do you still tend to overthink the game and get intimidated by the game? Is the game still that big to you, or are you able to just break it down and keep every sector of the game on a small, you know what I'm saying, like a small sight picture right. to where you can really concentrate on each little part of it? The best thing that I can do is, is, is have a very, very short memory and understand that I'm playing the game one pitch at a time. And that this is the you know I don't make any situation more important or greater than any other situation. I, you know, I'm trying to do my best all the time. So you know the the reporter's favorite thing to do is say, "Hey, are you super super excited about this year?" I'm like, "No, I'm excited about every single year." And like, I'm not. I can't just flip the switch. Up. You know, I'm either on or off. Like, there's no like on even more. Right? I'm always trying my best every pitch. So for me to to think, oh, I really got to lock in for this one because it's the ninth inning. Like that's that's not how I operate. I'm doing the same, you know, I'm locked in every single time. And then, like you said, you know, I only have to, it's one step at a time. You know, if I look at the Great Wall of China and see a, mi a billion steps in front of me, like it's going to be a daunting task. But if I just know that I got to win this one pitch, you know, like I got to swing at this one strike or I got to take that one slider in the dirt. And then I step out of the box and recollect my thoughts and step back in there and do it again. You know, and I just do one pitch at a time, you know, for 200 pitches a game, 
you know, whether that's offense or defense, and then you, you do it, you know, seven times a week times, you know, six months, you know, I'll look up and be where I want to be. That's a lot of, you know, instances because you're taking, when you slow the game down pitch by pitch, when you see as many pitches as you do in a game, cause you're talking defense too. I mean, you're, you're getting ready in an athletic position mentally. What's the, you know, your angles, whatever, you know, you you got your defense has you positioned for certain hitters. That's a, that's a really cool way to look at it. And I think that it draws a conclusion to me that you have to have, and tell me if I'm wrong, Charlie is 33 years old. You've seen it all in baseball. You, it's a business. You get a paycheck from this. You make a good living. And I, we don't even talk about that, but you baseball players make a good living playing a kid's game. Is it still number one to you? Is the love there to where you wake up every day and just go, I get to go play ball, man. I can't wait to get out there. Or there's, are there days that you're like, man, I'm just not feeling it today, but you still go? Or is every day just like just a blessing to be a ball player still? Uh you know, I think that love for the game is what initially gets guys to the level at which they can play professionally. I, when I look around our locker room, if I were to name off the best players, the it's always, always the guys that love the game the most. If you really, really love it, you're going to enjoy uh, taking ground balls, hitting in the cage. You know, you're going to try to perfect all of those little things that add up. You're not going to look at it like work. You're going to say, man, you know, like you're really good at duck hunting. You know, you probably enjoy practicing blowing your call. It's 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 a necessity for you to go out and pattern your shotgun because that's going to like make you better. And you're going to enjoy those things and you're going to do better at you're you're going to be a better practicer than everybody else because you love it more. And and that's what carries you to the top. Then the hard part is like staying there, you know, like I've, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to play in the big leagues for a long time. And, and the hard part then is, is managing everything and keeping it in perspective. And, and I think what gives you longevity in the game is, is competitiveness, right? Like right now, I can't tell you if it's because I love the game or if it's because I hate to lose or it's because, uh, I want to be the best. Like, I don't know what combination of it, of those things, like, has enabled me to play for this long, but I think it's probably not any one of those things. It's probably the collective. Making what is going on currently almost impossible to bear for somebody with your approach to the game. Spring training, you, you get told it's a gun. It's we're three weeks in and it's done. You can stay here. You can work out if you want. We're going to come in here and, and clean and clean everything really good because of this coronavirus. You can go to Denver and work out in the stadium or you can go home. This has never happened in Major League Baseball. I think in 94, somewhere there was a strike that, you know, was mid-season. But this is this is different. And a guy like you that loves the game so much, it's your livelihood, it's your paycheck. There's all of these different factors that are going into your day now. And this is this can become stressful. It can cause anxiety on a professional athlete when you don't know. There's no certainty of what's going on. What is Is it still that same approach? Hey, I just got to do the small things today and I'm going to take one day at a time. Or are you just like, come on, man, open the door and let's roll. Obviously safety is a concern. I get that. Right. Well, I tell you, it's such a weird feeling because as a baseball player, I am used to so much structure. You know, as I sit here right now in March, I usually have every single day of the next seven months of my life planned out exactly. I know exactly where I'm going to be, exactly where I'm playing the game. You know, it's it's very set in stone. And and the fact that right now it's up in the air and we don't know, like 
I don't want to say I'm panicking, but it's not what I'm used to. You know, it's, it's a little bit out of my comfort zone. Um, but at the same time, I think you've got to keep it in perspective. What can I control right now? Well, I'm going to wash my hands a lot. You know, I'm going to, um, I'm going to make sure that I'm ready. Uh, and, and really, really the only anxiety that I'm experiencing is knowing that I've gotten myself in a really good shape to play ball. And now we're not going to have spring training games and I'm worried about regressing, right? Like I got to, I got to make sure I get in the gym and, and, and keep up with my hitting and throwing and make sure I'm running and just make sure that I'm going to be ready to go when called upon. Is it, is it just nonstop messaging and, and communication right now of what might be, or are there any, is anything been figured out at all to where you know how long you're going to stay in Arizona or you, is it going back and forth in your mind? Like, well, maybe I'll go to Denver and just hang out there at my pad up there and, and work out in the stadium. Do you, do you have anything in detail yet or in stone? Everything is so fluid right now. Um, 24 hours ago, we knew so much less than we know now, you know, 48 hours ago. I mean, it's a completely different story. Three days ago, like I thought I was still going to play a normal spring training schedule. So like things are changing so fast that, Honestly, right now, I'm just going to hang tight until we really, really get a handle on the situation and know what at least the next two weeks looks like. And then I'll make a decision what's best for for me and my people. Uh, you know, I, I'm leaning towards uh, staying out here in beautiful Phoenix and, you know, working out in the sun. Um, you know, but I ha there are other options. You know, I, I could go home. I could go back to Atlanta. I could go to Denver. You know, um, I, I'm just, I'm not sure at this point, And I think I'll probably hang tight for a little while. Such a weird deal. What a, there's a really weird mystique about where you play too. And I've always wanted to ask you this since I met you is when you hit a home run, you know, you hit a home run, you know, it's, you get it. Mm -hmm. Some of them are like, ah, it might get out. Might you know, it just might be the angle of the ball. Is it going to clear the fence? But when you get it, you know, it, mm -hmm. A lot of times in the last 20 years, 15 years, you hear, oh man, ball's flying out of Denver. Oh man, it's that high mountain air. It's that, it's that rocky. It's, they got the advantage up there. Every pitcher is, gonna, is just scared for his life tonight. When you hit one in Denver, is it going to go out of 99% of the parks in the league? Or is there a lot of instances where that air does help it fly out of the yard more? And you're just like, I just cannot believe that ball went out of the yard. So... I mean, elevation, this could be its own podcast in itself. Elevation changes a lot of things. Um, I think they, you know, they did a bunch of studies mathematically figured out that the ball carries, you know, three or 4% further at altitude. Okay. So yeah, it's going to go a little further. Uh, is it going to go like, is it going to make all the difference? Probably not, especially because we have the, like we have the biggest part by far in any of the national league. And honestly, if you look statistically, Denver is middle of the pack in terms of amount of home runs given up. So you're not going to hit way more homers in Denver. Uh, you do have the opportunity to, you know, hit the ball a little further in Denver than somewhere else. I think the real change that happens is the atmosphere is, is dry, right? You, there's there's less air and it's drier and there's less resistance on the baseball after it leaves the pitcher's hand that's that's for me that's where the game is is changing or has changes the most from sea level to elevation and so i think it might be uh you might be more likely to hit the ball in the barrel in denver maybe 
But then for that same reason, if you get really used to hitting at altitude, it makes hitting at sea level much harder, right? When, when balls do slightly different things out of the hand of the pitcher. And then not to mention being at altitude for a prolonged period of time, you're going to have less oxygen in the air. You're going to recover worse, you, you know, over six months of, of, a, of the season where you're not recovering as well. You're more susceptible to injuries. You're going to get fatigued. You know, that's really hard to quantify and, and you never get used to it either. Right. You, they say you need two weeks at altitude and then you get used to it and then you're fine. Well, we never spend two weeks in Denver. We spend a, a week, week and a half, and then we go on the road for a week, week and a half, right? So we're constantly in flux with our bodies trying to adapt to a new environment. Would you stay there knowing what you know now about what you just discussed and what you just described? Would you stay there, sign a long-term deal there to keep putting your body through that of the ups and downs of being at 45, 4,800 feet, and then you're down in San Diego at zero feet. And then you're in Atlanta at zero feet. And you're in Miami at zero feet. And then you're, in, I mean, there's not a whole lot of parks that are built. You played in Reno, where I'm from, at the AAA stadium there. And that's pretty much the same altitude of Denver. It's really you know, high. Up, it's yeah. really high up there. And then, you know, we got the University of Nevada, Reno baseball there. The ball flies out of those yards pretty good, but nowhere, nowhere to where, you know, I, you just got me thinking on a totally different level of the body and the recovery and all of the, all of that thought that goes into it. Do you like that or would you rather change that and play in a place like San Diego to where mm -hmm. you're just chill and everything's the same? Obviously, you're going to go to Denver once in a while, but for the most part, you're playing at sea level. So if I had the ability to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing, right? Nice. Like Denver is, is such an unbelievable place and it's, it's, it's brought me to meet so many cool people with a great organization and I love my teammates and, 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 and things are going well. I love my life and, and I wouldn't change it. Now, do I wonder sometimes what it would be like if I had played somewhere else? Absolutely. You know, like I, I think everybody wonders that and I think that's healthy. But uh, but I, you know, I, I, I love it there. I wouldn't change it. Um, and I'm having a great time. What is this? And I want John to talk about this, too, because he's a, he's been in competition. But do you have an alter ego like fighter fighters? John fought 13 years on the U.S. team. He has an alter ego like he'll destroy you, but he's a teddy bear. But mm -hmm. if you piss him off, not you personally, I'm just saying <laughs> yeah. that he can he can I'm not coming after you, John. He, he, <laughs> he can wreck a lot of guys in jujitsu and in martial arts, and he fought in the Pan Am games and all this. A lot of fighters have an alter ego. They turn it all when they're in the octagon or on the mat. You go by Chuck Nasty on some of your on some of your social. You have the beard, you have a mullet, somewhat of a mullet, or you know, like the the long hair in the back. Is it party in the business in the front, party in the back? Oh, I don't yes, know. Sir. But is this an alter ego? Is this something that you can, is it is it happen in college? <laughs> Did you were you a, a an outlaw? Where does when does this start to transpire? Um, on, you know, unfortunately, like you guys will never meet like on the field, Chuck. Like when it's when I'm at the baseball field, like between the lines, not even between the lines. Like when it's work time, it's I am the most boring like quiet, focused, intense person. Like it's just, you, you would have to ask my teammates because those are the only people that see how I am at the field. And, and honestly, a lot of times when it's like younger guys are on the team and they see me like away from the field and they're like, oh my gosh, like you're smiling and you look ha like you're happy, you're enjoying things. And like, you have a personality now, like, I'm, you know, like it's, it's just night and day difference for me when it's, when it's time to compete versus, you know, I'm chilling at, at the house 
and then also, I mean, like the social media is kind of like its own thing too. Like that guy, the guy that runs that account, which is me, but like, I mean, I just, so like, there's several I'm just, yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, like I know what I like to be entertained with. And so I just figure I would let other people in on that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I just, I just think you have to, you have to be able to like clear the mechanism or, or narrow your focus or whatever it is. You know, I just can't walk in off the street all happy go lucky and, and try and hit 97 you know like it, it doesn't work like that like you gotta you've got to be ready to go mentally physically and there's a lot to it yeah and that was that was said beautifully um and I'll, I'll tell you our coach used to tell us that same exact thing clearing the mechanism and from different parts of your life because as a fighter that is such an intense time and you can't take that home with you like when you go home to be with your no. kids and your wife, no, you don't want to turn it off. You don't want to walk in the front door with that intensity still on you. So we used to do this exercise where we would just stop and breathe and just kind of vision this thing, just washing from head to toe and just washing it off of you so that by the time you walked in that door, you were just a different person. And we would just learn how to change that demeanor. But man, just like you said, when I, when I flew into a fight, man, as soon as I got into training mode, don't, I, I just, I was just locked in. It was just, I, I was on zone and I didn't want to talk to any fans. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to focus on the fight and it was just 100% dialed in focus. And I was, I was just a different person. Yeah. For me, it's, it's a slow build, right? I, 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 I feel it building all day, right? Like I wake up, I know I'm playing that night at seven, you know, and for breakfast, you know, I'm, I'm loose and relaxed, you know, and by lunch, it's like, all right, I'm kind of thinking about it. And then after lunch, you know, when I'm hitting BP, it's like, all right, this is happening, you know, and, and it just, you know, and then six o'clock, it's like, all right, I'm putting my spikes on, but I'm time, I'm kicking teeth in. And then game time, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm super focused, you know, that slow build is, is kind of how I prefer it. And then, and then, you know, like my family, we kind of, we have an understanding where, like we're not going to complain that it takes you a long time to work out and eat and shower and all that stuff after the game. Like it's going to take me a while. Uh, just don't complain about it. And and on my end, I'll I'll assure you that most of the time, uh, when I leave the clubhouse, I'm back to like normal regular Chuck. I'm not like super intense, like pin up, upset or overly happy. You know, I'm just my normal self, and I can I can I can leave the park and you know leave the game at the park best i can when you start <clears throat> thinking about some of the things that are said about athletes over the years i start to think about being unapproachable is it almost taking a chance of turning people off to you do you start to you get such a an intensity about you between the lines in the dugout game time does it does it mess with your relationships potentially with other players on other teams do media do you do you intimidate the media with this this alter ego of chuck it, it, you know baseball chuck as opposed to if a media guy saw you at a taco bar on a saturday night you might be a little bit better interview has that played a role in your career at all because with fighters some fighters are look like man that guy's a you know he's an a-hole because because he's like he's in that intense mode of training and he's not ready to be approached. But you catch him, you catch Chad Mendez on a fishing trip with a beer in his hand. He's the coolest, sweetest guy in the world. Same with John or a lot of the fighters I know. Is has it ever messed with you in a way to where it's turned somebody off to you of a potential friendship or a potential conversation or something? Yeah, I, I think uh, you know, I think sometimes if I'm still hot, you know, like right after a game, like maybe a reporter who knows me as like loose and relaxed, like knows me as my off the field person, you know, if they're exposed to like on the field, Chuck, it's a, I mean, it's a stark contrast. Like people are 
taken aback a little bit. And, and, uh, you know, I try not to show like on field Chuck to, you know, to my, certainly my family doesn't need to see it, you know, like my teammates are hopefully the only people that see that, but they know like that, that, that's a good thing. If this guy's like ready to, ready to compete. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think, I think the, the atmosphere can kind of change things too. You know, I, I try to be a nice guy, but like inevitably, like the game's hard. I pour so much into it. You, you can catch me in a bad time. Like things are going tough for me. It, you know, I, I'll try and be on an even keel. And I think that's important to, to, to not have emotional highs and lows, but you know, I, I'm dealing with the best I can and I don't always get it right. Well, and I, I think that they've, you know, reporters and, and everybody, they have to be able to respect that. Like you're competing at that super high level. There's going to be emotions and intensity that they have to understand and, and respect. One of the things that I hate so much in the fight world, and I wish they'd quit doing it, is they put you through five rounds of hell you just had your face punched in for 25 minutes and then what's the first thing they do to you oh, shove a, a microphone, microphone right in your face. face i hate it and you're supposed to say something smart that's why you watch fighters that very few of them after going through that can put together a decent sentence you know you're just kind of spewing whatever's in your head i mean i challenge anybody to get punched in the face for 25 minutes and then try and say something smart you oh, know not, and then the worst part is it's so easy to criticize at home not always, knowing what they've been through always. not knowing yep. like how hard they've worked or how tough it is to get punched in the face or how tough it is to strike out in a big situation. Like people don't, they can see it, but they don't know what it's like to feel it, experience it. And, and, and if that's the case, it's hard to appreciate how hard it is or how hard they work to get there and, and knowing that, man, like that's, that's more than I could have taken. So instead of respecting, Hey man, that was, you know, they prepared themselves to compete and they failed, which is a big part of being successful. Right. Uh, you know, that's just not the perspective that you know, most people are going to take. Yeah, but when you're dealing with a baseball player, football player, you, you put the ball in a running back's hand 15 times, 20 times a game. He might fumble once every four games. He might get tackled behind the line, and that's a team sport. Might have been a guy filling the gap and getting through the, the two hole and the guard didn't pull the right way. Baseball, you're up there and you have a team. It's not college wrestling to where you're on the mat and you're all by yourself under the light, even though you do have a team that is trained with you days going into that match. You fail seven out of 10 times and you're still expected to smile and approach the game with dignity and class and ethics and morals and honesty and transparency and to not be caught off guard more when you're failing that much in life if i failed 70 percent of my of my you know my workload i'd be very unsuccessful i would not be able to do what i do if i failed 70 percent of the time so when you're failing 70 percent of the time but you're still considered a stud because you're accomplishing something 30% of the time, that's a, my, a weird mindset in itself that you got to juggle for six, really 12 months out of the year, because I don't know if it teaches you to accept failure easier and to be able to balance it, or does it make you go, man, I got to freaking not fail 70% of the time in all these other areas of my life because I'm failing so much over here as a baseball player. It's, yeah. Baseball is just so hard because not everything is under your control, right? If you're a basketball player and you're open like you have the you know you can make that shot but it's like uh you know like i can't control what pitch he throws or i can't control how that defender reacts to the ball that i hit and uh there's so much that's out of your hands and the fact that there is so much failure involved in baseball really drives the culture like like it 
like baseball players are mentally tough. They get beat up all the time. Uh, they like to blow off steam, you know. I mean, guys are constantly looking for ways to equalize that stress. Um, and so, I mean, it's it's a it's something that not everybody can can overcome. A lot, a lot of guys have plenty of talent, but cannot deal with the failure heavy nature of baseball. Yeah, it's that failure heavy. That's that's a perfect way to put it. Failure heavy because if a fighter lost seventy percent of his fights, he wouldn't be a fighter. He wouldn't be a fighter. And baseball players are consistently supposed to be like what it's so cool to hear so interesting to hear charlie say the things that are out of your control because you you are when when you have the ball in in a basketball game you see an open guy you can pass it you get an assist if you're opening for the shot like you said if you drive the lane you get a layup you really have no idea even standing in right field what's getting ready to happen with the next pitch thrown you have an idea of what's coming because of the, the situational defense but man, that ball gets driven in the gap or down the line. And there's there's so much unknown in the game of baseball. And wrestling, jiu-jitsu, you could be 140 pounds and smoke a 300-pounder by being able to use your body and get in different positions for chokes or arm bars or submissions or whatever. Baseball, you have no idea what your opponent's going to do next. And that's the tricky part of the game that makes it so mental. And I'm not saying that fighters aren't unorthodox and they can do things that you're not prepared for. But in jiu-jitsu, if if you feel a move coming on, you can do something to prevent that move and put your body in a different position. In baseball, you're standing there, and if that ball goes into the right center gap, he's got to react one way. If it goes down the line, he's got to react another way. If it's a line drive right at you, now what do you do? And you're just like a lot to juggle. So that that competitiveness or that preparation, being prepared is, and I don't even know if that's the right word, Charlie, but you guys have something that is always dealing with the unknown. Is it a slider? Whoa, I saw the red dot. Whoa, is it a changeup? Looks like a fastball. Oh my gosh, it's not coming at me that fast. Well, now he just threw a high fastball. Can I get the barrel on the ball up there? I don't know. Should I swing? And you got 0.04 seconds to do all of this, right? It's crazy. You certainly don't have time to think about it and decide like you aren't making cerebral decisions on the baseball field. You are purely reacting to what you've trained your body to do. And so for that reason, there's there's a lot that you can do to get in the way of that, right? Like if I'm just trying to react, you know, if I'm up there thinking don't strike out or don't swing at a ball or don't swing at that slider in the dirt, like that's going to hurt your reaction. And so it's you know, a big part of it's controlling your thoughts and just putting yourself in a situation where you're purely reacting to what your eyes see. And hopefully I can turn my brain off or at least get in the right frame of mind to let that happen. So when you're in your off, in your off days, and this is a thing that I know about you through following you, talking to you, the thing that you just explained is a lot to do with your hobby of fly fishing. And when I fly fish, it's strategy, strategy. it's matching the hatch, it's kind of hunting the fish. Is he there? water moving, slow current, fast current, you know, is it rolling over a rock? What kind of fish am I, if I'm fishing for it now, is it dry fly? Is it a nymph? Am I, it, do I need a locator? All of this strategy, my cast, am I going to roll over cast? How far am I trying to get my fly out there? Do you see a lot of what you talk about in your baseball approach, in the fly fishing approach, and that's what ties you to the outdoors in your in your in your stance with Mother Nature? Because you love to fly fish, you love to be by yourself. It seems, even though you have friends that you fish with, but that's like therapy. I get that, but there is there also that competitiveness that comes out in you to get the fish. Exactly, uh, I love to approach the baseball game like 
very scientifically. I, I like to identify all the variables and ways that I can get better. You know, I can watch video, I can improve my body, I can, I can change my swing. Like there's so many different things that I can do to create a successful product, which is the same thing fly fishing, right? There's like so many variables fly fishing. Uh, number one, it, it get you know, first of all, I get out of the city and I go somewhere super beautiful and I love fishing, you know? It, and then secondly, it's super hard, right? There's, you know, you gotta be in the river and you gotta, it's just, it's not easy kind of like baseball, but then there's a lot of variables, you know, exactly like you said, like which fly, what presentation, you know, what's the fish doing, how, you know, then I got to learn about the nature of the fish. Like, is it, is that fish feeding? Is it, is it resting? Like what type of bugs is that fish eating? Like I can watch a fish in a river, watch, you know, watch its actions and try, you know, as best I can try and decide what that fish is eating based on how it's acting, you know, and, the, and just kind of like figuring it out is something that I can get completely wrapped up in. And the beauty of all this is while I'm doing all this, I'm not thinking about baseball. You know, I'm not thinking about baseball. It's kind of my mental escape. It's, it's something I enjoy doing and I get away from people or I just spend time with, you know, very select people. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things where I think because the pressures of the game are so high, you know, I have to have this outlet over here to kind of bring me back to an equilibrium, you know, every so often. But does that outlet ever make you want to throw your rod down and, <laughs> and, and go back to the dugout? Do you ever get that competitive with the fish? And, and more importantly, your approach to fishing, do you ever let it get to that point to where you're like oh, Beavis and Butthead oh, and you're just crap? You're like, you know, you don't want your hand gripped on your bat tight. You want to be relaxed and loose. Same with the fly rod. But do you ever find yourself like, I'm out of here and just throw the rod down and walk out of the river? I've been tested quite a few times there's just there's the only way to learn something in fly fishing is to screw it up right like you screw something up and you're like all right i won't do it that way next time and 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 it's once again it's like a, one of those failure heavy endeavors and and there's been multiple times where i've just i've boiled over and i've just had to like walk out of the river go sit down and just like like cool off you know like i'm gonna get you know, put myself in time out for a half hour it's yeah, funny to think you got to slow down and cool off from fishing. Yeah. It's, I mean, <laughs> it's, Man, fly fishing will smoke me, dude. I will get so, and my brothers are way better at it. And we are lucky enough to live by one of the most premier fly fishermen in the world, Dave Stanley. And if you ever Google Dave Stanley, he's a mile from my house and a dear friend of mine taught me how to duck hunt. Owned the Reno Fly Shop for years. He fishes all over the world. Oh, I've been to that shop. Reno Fly Shop, yeah. That uh, Does he well, own it? He owned it for years. He sold it two years ago, but he owned it when it was over on Moana by the old AAA stadium south of downtown. But Dave, I mean, from the southern tip of Cancun to Tarpon and in Belize or Bonefish in Belize and to Tarpon in Florida and the Keys and to Russia and you name it, this guy's caught it on a fly rod cutthroat trout in pyramid lake up where we from he ladder fishes for him and just matches it and just it's amazing it's just a, a beautiful art to watch and then i get out there and i'm like i suck so bad at this and i my patients are being tested which i get my patience is something that i'm working on daily at 45 years old still and i'm trying to take on this life this this hobby that's supposed to make me happy and yeah. relax <laughs> and i'm literally like cussing like what in the I can't do anything he's doing, no matter how hard I practice or how much some people just don't get, get the, to the point of where Dave is. So you have to slow it down and work on the little things like, okay, today, my goal is to not 
get caught up in the bush behind me. I'm going to learn how to cast short baby steps. Yeah, baby steps. And that's what I've learned with fly fishing is that you for a long time, I didn't even have the confidence to go anymore because I felt like I was going to embarrass myself in front of other fishermen. So I'd sneak out on the back grass and just like practice my 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 casting. And I got an invite from Dave two weeks ago to go and we're going this coming week and I'm stressed out about it. I'm like going, man, I don't know what's going to happen. Because if he invites me duck hunting, I'm like, heck yeah, let's go. I could hold my own. I'm, I'm humbled that you're taking me. Let's go. I can't wait. I'm, let's have fun. I can hit the call a little bit. I can work the dog. I can work the jerk string, whatever you need me to do. Fly fishing is the ultimate in the outdoor accomplishing. And I mean, if you don't do it and you're the best deer hunter in the world or you're the best elk guide or moose guide up in British Columbia, or you've had grizzly bears charging you, it still does not... <laughs> do what fly fishing can do to the mind when you accomplish it when you get that right cast and that fish hits it which has happened to me four times in the thousand casts <laughs> and i have all i got pictures of them and i'm just like god it's the best feeling in the world like hitting that ball on the part of that barrel that it's supposed to be hit on and there's there's a big difference between fly fishing and bobber fishing just like there's a huge difference in my humble opinion of a baseball player compared to every any other athlete in the world. And I say that in a lot of, of our talks and everybody's like, looks at me like I'm crazy, but I just think that there is a complete separation of a professional baseball player compared to other professional athletes the, from what we've been discussing today and fly fishing. When I saw you do it, I'm like, he is fly fishing for a lot more reasons than just getting out of town. There's a lot more than goes into it. And it's cool that that approach is there. And I don't, I think it's something that you're probably going to spend the rest of your life trying to, I don't think conquer is the right word because you're never going to. No. You go to the Deschutes River in Oregon and you're like, I've never seen water this fast. What do I do? Mm -hmm. And the guy next to you is just freaking, and he's just hammering them, right? And there's just always something to build on. Just like what I would have been talking to you about in baseball at 33 years old, all-star, bomb in the all-star game, big contracts, longevity, playing at the same team your entire career so far. And you're still trying to build these little tiny nuances every day. And that to me is why you fly fish. It's just this really, you're, you're, there's not a lot of guys that I know that do both, that play baseball and fly fish a ton. I know a lot of baseball players that hunt. I know a lot of baseball players that do other activities, but fly fishing's on a different level of hobby, if that makes sense to you. I think it's a bit of a of a niche hobby. And it, you know, I think it's I think you can kind of compare it to duck hunting as to where I don't even know if hobby's the right word. Sometimes I think it's more of an addiction. And you kind of say addiction with like that, like I don't know if it's exactly the best thing all the time to be doing, you know. Like exactly. I, don't, I don't, you know, like am I doing it because I enjoy it or because I feel like I like have to, you know, like it's kind of a weird, that's exactly what I was trying to say in so many words. It's, it's kind of a, a weird way to describe it. But the beauty, like one of the most beautiful things about it is, is, you know, just like baseball, just like duck hunting, fly fishing, like anybody can for a day show up and enjoy it. Right. Like it's, it's something where you can take someone you've never taken before. Uh, you can bring your significant other, you can take a kid, you know, like, and they can have a blast and then you can spend a lifetime getting really good at it and still not like perfect it. Right. Yeah. One of your biggest fans in the state of Colorado is a unbelievable. He's a three time world elk calling champion. He is responsible for some of the biggest elk ever being harvested in, in bow and arrow hunts on camera. He's called in so many big elk for people. He's a master turkey hunter. He's called in so, way more turkeys than I'll ever imagine calling in. And he's a world-class Colorado stream and river fly fisherman. And he, and he 
um, what was his name? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you about this guy's name, but he talked to me yesterday and he's like, dude, I gotta just, uh, he wanted to come meet you last year at the yard. Cause he comes to rock. He brings his son. His son's a stud player in grand junction. And he's always like, dude, I gotta meet Chuck Nassie. And I'm like, I'm just real proud about it. I'm getting to know Chuck myself. But anyway, I started thinking, I'm like, man, I bet you Chuck and him would hit it off in a raft or on a rafting trip down a river. His name's J.R. Keller. He is a stud outdoorsman. He works in the outdoor industry. He's in Grand Junction, but he comes to Denver a lot. And he's just always talking about the Chuck Nasty mystique. And, 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 but if you look at, if you followed him on Instagram and you see the fish he's catching all the time and what he does in the turkey woods and the elk woods and in and, and the mat, and he's also a big time goose hunter on the front range, Grand Junction mainly, but he's just got this weird approach about baseball fly fishing he's a huge baseball guy he played baseball he, and he's a fly fishing nut and he's an outdoors nut and then he's like this has this mystique about you and i just sit there and go man that's it's just a, a cool combination of of common interests but his is at a different level your ability to hit the baseballs at a different level and i think they would just intermingle the right way on the fly fishing waters or or if you wanted to get in the elk woods with him or whatever he's just got that ability to succeed like more more so than i've ever seen anybody do it and if you talk to a lot of people that have hunted with him they're they're just like it's weird he's just he's like a, a, a elk whisperer and a turkey whisperer and a fish whisperer the, yeah there's he's, there's he's those guys on the river they're just they're just fishy like i don't know like he's doing the same thing i'm doing he's catching all the fish and i'm not you know like he's just got something about him i don't know if it's a feel i don't know if he can describe it you know like i just right i, I can't i can't put words to it but but there's certain guys like that and those are the guys you want to hang out with too, you know? Well, that's why I hang out with him because I, when I watch him on stage at these elk calling competitions, I'm like, man, he just goes up there and destroys people. Like he just sounds so real and authentic. And I'm not saying the other callers don't, but JR's just has this knack of a woodsman, of a naturalist. Like he lives with the fish. He can walk up to a body of water and just be like, okay, this is what we're going to do and have this whole thing. Just a visionary. He's a visionary when he, his vision of fishing is amazing. Turkey woods. This is what the turkey's going to do. He's going to come from here. He's going to approach this way. He's going to fan out over here. And I'm like, that turkey really this just is did the what most, Yeah, said. like the most unpredictable who knows what bird and, and he can just... And elk See too. In his head. And he can just paint the picture and like start throwing all of these oils at the canvas, the way he approaches the hunt, the way he locates them, the way he locates a fish. A lot of people don't understand that a lot of fly fishing sight too. You know, you're looking for things in there or seeing a flash or seeing a tail or whatever you're looking at. There's a lot of sight that goes in and vision envision stuff about fishing. You know, it's not just throw your, your, fly in the water anyway i just thought that there, there'd be a cool uh connection there just because of the colorado and because of the fly fishing mainly but and i, I know that you're an outdoorsman in other way do you have do you have a lot of inspiration from growing up was there a mentorship that got your the, your love for the outdoors or was it mainly athletics and competitiveness your whole life and then this has just become a little bit of a relief so i was lucky enough to have uh you know, a family that was really connected to the outdoors, but both my mother and father, um, each side of the family that they had property outside of town that we had access to from an outdoors perspective, whether it be, I mean, we did a whole lot of squirrel hunting and we would, you know, catch bass in the pond and, you know, we'd go, uh, deer hunting. Uh, occasionally if we were lucky, we'd get to do some bird hunting, but that was, you know, for us in the Southeast, that meant we were shooting doves and uh or quail yeah and 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 just recently you know i've kind of 
embarked on this duck hunting journey where it's like, you know, this is something new. You know, I, I, I'm big on new experiences. Let me try something new. And, and I felt like I had enough of a, of an outdoor background growing up and just like enjoying being outside, trying new things and, and being in nature. And, and I enjoyed, you know, like pursuing fish and, you know, hunting and, and I just enjoyed it. So I, you know, I, I tried duck hunting just like I've tried other things before. Sometimes you like stuff, sometimes you don't like stuff, but duck hunting is one of those things where you try it and you're like, wow, that's, that's an eye opener. It's, it's something that I really want to spend time doing. It's fun. And I'm interested in it and I'm, you know, I'm, so I'm drawn to it and You're it's so like, now I'm YouTube, you know, I'm, I'm like my wife, it'll be like, you know, midnight and I'm like, got the phone turned down really low and I'm like YouTubing like, you know, duck calls and like, and it's just, she's like, like, what you are not, you know, the season's closed. You're not going for, you know, at least 10 months. Like what, like, what are you doing right now? Like go to sleep. And, and it's, I mean, it's just one of those things. You can relate, I'm sure. Oh, I think I can. And I think that it's, it's, it, there's not a better lifestyle, in my opinion. I'm blessed to be able to go duck hunting as much as I do, but it's kind of what you compared it to with fly fishing. There's a lot of different elements of it that, that make you more successful or make you able to at least have a chance at success, you know, by doing the little things. The approach of the hunt is not just throwing decoys out there and hoping they see them and they're going to come to them. There's a lot that goes into the color of the water, the ripples on the water, the hide, this look of your skin, the shadows. Everybody's like, it's it's cloudy, it's a low ceiling, it's spitting snow, a little bit of little bit of wind and cold. It's a ducky day, and I'm like, oh no, it's not. It's not a ducky day. You want sunshine, you want a northeast wind, you want the sun at your back, and that's when ducks will act like ducks. When it's cloudy, they can pick you apart. You have no shadows, nothing looks real to them. Your decoys look really fake with the different color contrast coming through the UV. And but everybody has it in their head that a ducky day is stormy, the black clouds coming and we're going to really get them today. And I'm like, I'm going to wait for the storm to pass or I'm going to hunt them on the sunny day before the storm's coming. And they're really feeling that barometric pressure drop. And now my approach goes to, all right, if I know that tomorrow I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to have some sustainability or have some better nutrition or whatever. I'm going to eat before the storm gets there, before the workout gets there. You know, you do that with your body, your trainer all the time. And it's the same with a duck. If they feel that pressure dropping, their mind goes, I got to eat. So I'm going to go out there on the sunny day before the storm and get them good, mm -hmm. you know, but as that storm starts is, and I'm going to catch a lot of new ducks on the front of that storm because they're traveling in front of it, you know, migrating down. So there's all these different approaches. Right. And I, and I just, I've always found that people that get into it, a lot of baseball players duck hunt. And I don't know again, is do they get that, the, the whole approach of it and that's what gets them hooked in is that it's more than just going out and seeing a deer at 400 yards which is cool too and shooting them at 400 yards and the hunt's over i'm fine with that too but duck hunting they're the mental approach to duck hunting and you got to keep going because you're not going to get them every day you're going to fail a lot and so i don't know i just i I'm, I'm thinking that that's probably got you wrapped up in it a little bit too i, I think one of the things that really draws me to the sport is the fact that there's so many variables that you can figure out and then you get feedback from it, right? Kind of kind of like fishing. Like you can use different lures and different lines and different places. Like duck hunting, like, you know, the weather like is obviously a huge variable. Um, your decoy spread is a huge variable. Movement in your spread variable. The shape of your decoys, whether they're in the shade, in the sun, um, you know, is, is there wind? Which direction is the wind coming from? Are the trees around your water hole like going to like push them in from a different direction than you would otherwise, uh, 
think. Um, you know, and there's so many other variables that like, you know, I don't know enough about it. To, you know, you could speak to that, but just like the fact that you could figure it out or that, you know, you think you can figure it out. And then, you know, you set it up and you do the best you can and, and you think you've addressed all these variables and then you get feedback. Right. And then like it works, it doesn't work. They like your calling. They don't like your calling. And then you, cha- you know, maybe you call less, you call more like, okay, how does that change what the ducks are doing? And I just think it's this journey that you try and figure out, and you know, it's different every year and every hunt's different. And uh, it's just something that I, I just think it's, it's super exciting. You know, it's I like, it's, it's like that. a high it's risk, cool. high reward. Like it would be cool to just like, you know, like have everything come together one day. Uh, you know, it'd be also kind of cool to like, maybe have a tough more you know really tough early morning and have ducks flaring out of there and then you hey we got to change something up i don't know what it is let's move some decoys around we'll change our calling and then have that be the variable that like works and then they come in you know and, and then you learn something that day i just and it happens too that happens yeah. all the time and in giving yourself the ability to adapt is it is you know it's easy to get stuck in a slump and say well what am i what do i need to work on i need to get in the cage when my drop in my back elbow is my timing off is my backside turn not there my hips out of place there's a lot that goes into the science of a baseball swing visualization is a huge part of that too and you know it's talked about in ted williams book of the science of hitting and the science of duck hunting and the approach to it that you're talking about is like all right well if it's not working I'm not going to sit here all day and let it keep not working. I'm going to do a, something a little bit different and see if it turns them on a little bit, or it might just be a little bit of a movement or a little bit more of a shake of a jerk string in a certain part or moving your spinning wing decoy in a different location or putting it under a tree to where it's not such a constant spin, but they're seeing tiny little flashes and that's telling those ducks in the air, Oh, that's natural, man. Ducks are there and they're hiding They're You know, they're back under there. So an Eagle can't get to them. They're under the, you know, under the limb or the overhang and the, it's little things like that, you know, putting yourself in those ducks shoes and, or I guess they don't wear shoes, but being that duck in the air and saying, this is what I'm looking at. And, and, and knowing how many decoy spreads they see and, and, and then how do you even get into the position to get to that hunt? You know, it's just the body of water, but did you scout it yesterday? Are you going into this hunt blind? Are you on the X? Are you in between them and trying to intercept them from where they want to go? And you're a good enough hunter to persuade them and manipulate them. And then you start talking about the vocalizations and the communication and the jargon and the vocabulary. And you're just like, man, and it's just never ending. And the next thing you know, you're like, well, I got this new place. I want to hunt and I need a boat and I need this mud motor. I can't oh, use an outboard. It's just, inevitably something you don't have that you need. It's, 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 it'll For eat sure. you up. I, 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 I trademarked this thing several years ago, Charlie. It says, we merely exist in a duck's world. And I was sitting in this Irish bar waiting on my friend Erica to come. She was coming to, I can't remember what we were meeting for. I'm sitting there and I look up to my left and there was this, I have the picture on my phone still. And I, this was, I don't know. Eight years ago, I probably still, I probably have the date on here, but look at this picture real quick. So I look up, I, I look up to my left in this bar, Irish bar. I'm glad uh, you're explaining where this came from because I've seen the picture, but I kind of wanted to get what was so behind I it. So I take this picture on September 2nd, 2012. And I'm like, what is that? And I'm, so I took a picture of it because to me, I looked up and I go, that's a duck's foot holding the world. <laughs> that's, I mean, it- it looks like that. And that's what I looked yeah. at. And I go, hey, bartender, what is that? And he goes, oh, that's the FIFA World Cup logo. Oh. 
And I went, what? That, that looks is... like a duck's foot wrapped around the earth. So I went to my artist, Tom, and I said, I want to do, we merely exist in a duck's world. And they just make my earth, they spin my earth however way. I'm always constantly thinking about a duck and they just control my every movement. And it, and we put it on all these graphics and t-shirts and stuff and put, we merely exist. In, and then it was a turkey foot holding the world. And it was a set of deer horns holding the world. And that's, you know, that's hunting. It could be two baseball bats, whatever. But when I saw that picture, I'm like, that's a duck holding my world and I took a picture of it and that's how it all came into existence you know that whole saying and that's really what it is it's like you get eaten up with it and it's the strategy behind it is if you can get them and then it's the lifestyle I mean there's no better place in the world than being in a truck on a dirt road in Alberta Canada driving and looking for flocks coming off of the river into a pea field and you go get permission from a farmer and that farmer invites you into his house to have a cup of coffee with him and his wife and you sit down and get to know this family. And the next thing you know, he asks you to drive his grain cart while he's combining. And now you're working together as a team to harvest his land. And the next thing you know, he's inviting you back up there, whatever, you know, and it's just like this whole, this whole network that just keeps getting built around it. And that's why I think, you know, it's, it has a lot to do with what's attracting you to the lifestyle and the culture of the duck hunter. And I'm not saying that, that it's, you know, any different than deer hunting. I don't like, you know, ever sounding like that, but to me, it's, it's more interactive and it's you know? like fly fishing is more interactive and like, and like this approach to baseball is so much different than a lot of a lot. And I have so many staunch opinions about baseball players that I literally like spark people to go, you're an idiot, dude, the way you think about this. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm right on this. But that I think that those three deals are, are comparable baseball, well, duck hunting and fly fishing. Th there's so many variables in each one. And I think that's what you guys have all been alluding to. You guys like the amount of variables and the unlimited amount of combinations. You, if you're, if you're a thinking man and you like the mental game, I think you really like those millions of combinations that could happen. And the fact that no hunt looks the same. Are you naturally you know? doing the Rubik's cube form with your hand because of that's yeah, kind of yeah, how yeah. it is? Yeah. It's like yeah, his, his son, his son's how old has Dominic? Uh, he just turned 11. And what's his world record? No, he's not a world record. Well, but his, his personal his, his fastest record for the Rubik's cube was uh, twenty one seconds. Oh my goodness! Complete, like completely mess it up. Like, yeah, you mess it up as much color. as you can, and then hand him the Rubik's cube twenty one seconds. And oh you're just goodness. like, dude. Like, <laughs> I spent some time on that YouTube rabbit hole for a little while, and I I have one myself, but never actually solved it. So right. I can just barely appreciate do, how hard that but is. But do you feel like? Because I would feel like this sometimes in my fighting, and I'm sure you've probably felt this in baseball. You you start making adjustments based on the feedback you're getting and, and it, you know when you're fighting it's real time you're watching somebody's movement and you're you're, you're making those adjustments and then s it just the wheels fall off the bus and the adjustments aren't working you just feel like it's just not making it and you i think that's when it comes back down to the core of your training and who you are and you just have to go back into your corner at the end of the round and just again clear the mechanism go right back to the basics and go okay we're going to rebuild this thing just strip everything i just did that last round it's just it's not working we're stripping it down we're going have you ever felt that way Absolutely. like you're just making too many adjustments yeah. too many things are moving so we call that a slump right like it's it's slump can is a huge term it, it can encompass all sorts of things but inevitably at some point during the season your body's going to take a downturn your swing's going to feel terrible you're going to run into some really tough pitching and some bad calls and like just everything's going to pile on all at the same time and you're going to you finally hit one hard and it goes right at somebody and and then you hit one that should have been a homer and the wind's blowing straight in you know like all these things will happen all at once kind of like you say and then you've got to you've got to step back and you've got to 
you know, clear, clear the mechanism, you know, like you've got to bring yourself out of your despair there, like mentally, you you can't be the reason why things continue to be bad. You've got to, you've got to mentally, uh, grind, you, you know, you've got to pull yourself out mentally. That's got to be the leading edge is how you're thinking. And, and then that, let that bring your performance out of the gutter or how you're not thinking. It, one of the things we used to do was we trained so hard. My coach would call it the sleeping warrior. He's like, we're building inside of you, the sleeping warrior. So that when you get into the ring, all you do is shut off. And all of a sudden, this thing that you created just you takes just over. React, right? You, you don't just have react. time to make decisions. You, you just react. You just exactly. react. And the idea is that you you train that sleeping warrior so well that he just takes over. And when when that starts to fail is when you actually start thinking and you get in his way mm-hmm. and you're trying to overthink. And then so sometimes the best thing you can do when things are getting like that is just stop thinking. Yeah. Just stop thinking. Just react. Just that, react. That's the hard part. Yeah. Is that we tend as a as a culture to overthink it, like what's going on in the world right now, you know? We we tend to think overthink a lot of things in life, and I'm very, I'm a victim, um, not a victim. I'm uh, proof of that. I'm the worst at overthinking a situation or assuming something and getting in my own way a lot of the times. And I think that what you're onto something as far as like being able to clear it, rebuild it, reboot it, but it's still that elephant in the room is like, when is it going to happen? It's going to happen. The inevitable is going to happen. You're going to start overthinking. And that in baseball, that was my biggest thing is where I want to go is like superstitions were, were, (laughs) are always talked about in baseball. You wear the same dirty socks until you don't hit the ball or, or like my whole thing was the on deck circle. And then what I did with my back foot digging in every AB before I, before I put the bat up and was ready to see the pitch. And I was always messing with it. My brothers would be like, you are, this is crazy. And now my nephew who's 16 does, has all of my wacky tendencies as a left-handed hitter and does the same thing. Remember Matt Williams used to bite his shirt and then, and then, you know, you, what do you do? What do you, I, what are yours? So I think you have to like occupy that blank space in your mind with a process, right? So if I'm doing things that are menial that I don't think about like the, uh, you know, like I'm like, I adjust my helmet and then I, you know, undo my batting gloves between each pitch. And then I, you know, I chew gum and, and I, I kind of like occupy my space in my mind so that I have all this stuff going on. But what I'm not thinking about is, oh, I, you know, like how do I hit a curveball? Right. Like I'm, I'm doing all these things that kind of keep me on track that I, I kind of put on cruise control. Right. Like these are my cruise control buttons. You know, like if I'm going to chew gum, I'm going to, it's like a tick. Uh, I'm going to have these like mannerisms where yeah. I keep messing with my jersey or I keep smacking my glove, you know, and what that does is it kind of puts me in my comfort zone in the same frame of mind where my it's a very comfortable thought process where I'm doing the same thing over and over and over again. And what that does is that keeps me from from changing what I'm thinking or, you know, introducing negative thoughts into my uh, into my brain. It keeps you in a rhythm. Yeah. yeah. How hard is an umpire's job? behind the dish how how the 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 title fight the other night with fury and wilder as soon as as soon as the fight was called i don't know if you guys watched it but as soon as it was called my first reaction was what is the referee doing he made the wrong call and then lo and behold from a different angle that you couldn't see the way the cameras were when it was called the the towel comes flying in from their corner and he saw it luckily he saw it because it came from a weird angle from him too and he stopped the fight which was his job but my first reaction was to get on the ref 
And in umpiring, it's almost like they're going to, they're always going to be the enemy. I looked at as the enemy from the fans and from the players. It's tough. So you're, you're asking them on average, you know, a bunch of middle-aged guys who don't have the talent of big league baseball players to react the exact same way big league baseball players are reacting. You know, like it's, it's a reaction for them too. Now, I have to make that decision, you know, with, you know, only seeing 15 feet of the 60 feet the balls are going to travel, whether or not I'm going to swing. So I expect, you know, for the umpire to be able to watch it all the way to the plate and then make the right decision, you you know, after the fact, you know, I I expect that to be pretty accurate, but I mean, the game happens so fast. I mean, it's, if I were to, you know, put one of you guys, you know, put a helmet on you and drop you in the box, like in a big league stadium, looking at, you know, 95 mile an hour pitch, like you would be completely overwhelmed. And, I'd, and, I'd, I'd, you lose, know, and, I'd lose the first And <laughs> the, the umpire's job is just so hard. Um, and all I really want to know is that they're trying to get it right and that they care about it and that, you know, if there's something questionable that they go and look after the game and, and try and make sure if they got it right so that they can learn and get better. And, and, and that's what I ask. And I think most of the guys really care about getting it right. But were you, were you, in, were you a big leaguer when they made the transition to instant replay? Were you already oh, yeah. in the league? What, yeah. what are your thoughts on it? And is it, I, do you, you like know, it? Has I, it slowed it down too much? No, I, I like it because it gets the call right. You know, I, I think that's, I think it's awesome. I think it's good for the game. It's exciting. I think they're trying to make it not last a long time. Like I don't want it to slow the game down, but I think if there's a, you know, an overwhelming error where everybody feels like, Hey, this call was missed. You have a chance to overturn it. I think that's great. I, you know, I don't think it was intended for guys who like barely pop off the bag when they're clearly safe. You know, I, I think we've maybe taken some liberties with it, uh, you know, based on how the rule is written. Which is, you know, I guess that's a side effect that I, I don't care for a whole lot. But I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's great for the game. Has it made umpires look better because the, they're the, are, are there more plays being overturned or the umpires getting it right more? Has there been a study on that yet? No, I don't know. You know, so, so I hear two camps here. One argument says ah, they don't have to get it right anymore. They because they can, you know, it takes the pressure off of them. They can just whatever, make whatever call they want. And then if the team wants to review it, they can review it. So, you know, like that's one thing. But on the other hand, I think most of the good umpires, and this is most of them, I think they don't, you know, they don't want to be, they don't want to make the wrong call. They don't want people to second guess them. And, you know, then we watch a thousand slow-mo views of it and and decide that this guy was wrong. And then we have to like put the camera on him and say, hey, there he was, he was wrong. You know, like I think, I think those guys are competitive too. Uh and they, you know, they, they're trying their best and, and, and do a pretty good job. And I think the, ump- you know, the officiating, the umpiring has gotten better and better uh, and it continues to get better. Do you know this name right here? Yeah, I do. Gooch. Chris Guccione. He's, He's a, a good umpire. Very good. Did the all-star or did the world series, I think the last couple of years. I know he was in the playoffs. He's a goose hunter and big outdoorsman. Really? I think he lives in Denver. We did for a long time. Uh, I know there's a couple guys that live in Denver, and he might be one of them. I know he did it one time. He's a great guy, great umpire. I mean, I, as far as what I know about umpiring, if you if you're if Charlie Blackman's not a major leaguer, but he loves baseball, who are the first? Who's the top three 
that you buy a ticket to watch? Are you allowed to talk about that? Are you allowed to show respect? Yeah. To other so players? here's my thing is <laughs> like, I, I cannot, t I will not tell you who like my least favorite pitcher to face is like, I'm not going to do that. Can't I, do it. I like facing all of them because they're all throwing <laughs> meatballs up there. You know, like that's, <laughs> that's my mentality. Um, you know, I, I do think Nolan Arenado, our third baseman, you know, I think he's on historic pace and I can't imagine seeing a better defender. Like there's just things that he does over there on a nightly basis. Like if you buy a random ticket out of 162 game season and go watch the Rockies play, he's going to do something that you might have never seen before. Like it's just it's truly that great and, it, and it's incredible to watch him play. Um, and then, you know, standing to his left is Trevor Story, who I think is maybe the best power speed combination in the big leagues right now like he's one of those true like nfl bodies who has the hand-eye coordination to play uh major league baseball he's I'm, playing shortstop he's playing shortstop which is an athletic yeah position. i mean he is he can he i mean he's the fastest guy on the team uh can jump has you know close as just as much power as anybody and he's really starting to put it together and he's going to be an incredible player to watch over the next year or two and um and he's i mean he's an awesome person too like from texas good guy good family um he's got a lot be a, a lot be to a like hunter, huh? uh, he, you know cowboy? i i think i think a lot of those young guys got brainwashed into only playing baseball that's all they do actually both trevor and and nolan are incredible golfers really a lot of baseball players really good at golf are you uh i like golf and play you know play golf occasionally but it's uh if I get an off day, you know, I'm, I'm going fishing. I'm not, uh, I'm not taking more swings at this point. So is trout number three, now that you saw him hit that golf ball over the road the other night on that video, is he, know. is he, you know, I wish I could have seen him play, you know, I'd like to see him play more, you know, he's, he's, you look at his numbers. I mean, he's all right. Like you, you it's hard to dispute him being maybe the best around. I just don't know why he's so good. You know, like, like I want to watch him play enough to be like, this is why he's so good. And, and I think, I think he's seeing it better than everyone else. Like, I think he knows, like, right out of the hand, like, this is where it's going to be. It's a ball. It's a strike. It's sliding. It's a changeup. Like, I just think he's just better. Like, he's just better out of the hand. You know, like, he's, you know, he's got tools. He's fast. He's strong. And, you know, he does a lot of things well physically. But I just think, you know, like, I think that's why he's so good. But I'd like to watch him play more. When you're – when you – have the ability to play in front of 40,000 people, let's say is average at a baseball stadium. If the team goes into the, the toilet and they're 15, 20 games out of first place, no shot of the playoffs. And you start to see the seats more and more. You see the color of the seats more and more. Is it harder to get up for that? Does your mental approach change because you're not putting on a show or entertaining? I know you can't let it get to that, but does it become more difficult when this, when the stadium's empty? Not for me, not for me. I, I think, you know, I think I'm approaching the same, I'm approaching the game like I'm playing in a vacuum, you know, like, like that's, that's not going to affect what I think, how I practice, how I play. Like, that's not something I think that matters a ton, but at the same time, I will say, you know, when you're in an electric atmosphere and you can feel it, you know, it, and, and maybe a little bit the opposite when things are kind of like, kind of like, you know, down and it's not very exciting and the fans don't seem into it. You kind of notice that too. Because I compare it to what John did. You're on the undercard or the preliminaries in the UFC and there's four people in there. There's not even an announcer barely sitting down yet. They're all out gambling and doing whatever they do in Vegas. 
you go to a concert and who's ever opening up for Zach Brown at Coors Field or whoever it is, everybody's still mingling in and they're getting their beers and they're socializing and they're just waiting for Zach to come on. And that opening act is up there and just hammering it and his passion or her passion is shining through and they're just giving it all they got. But it's got to be hard. It's got, I look at them, I'm like, nobody's paying attention to you nobody and you're just up there doing it for the love of it so it's got to be the same way in baseball if you're playing in a vacuum you gotta you're first you gotta win you're, you're you gotta try to get back into the win column if you're gonna fill those seats but second of all you don't want to you know personally you can't let your stats go into the toilet too just right. because of the team but you want to be a good team leader and keep the team going and try to build on something for the next year or something but it, to me it just being those early fighters or that opening act at a big concert or playing in that empty baseball stadium, it, it just seems like it would automatically change, you know, your ability to not maybe focus, but to, you know, to feel energetic or to feel electrifying or to want to do electrifying things if nobody's paying attention. I, I think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. When you're in that zone, I, I don't think that's one of the things that matters. Like, I got to fight the guy that's across from me no matter who's watching. I mean, it's it just is what it is. Like, I'm going to fight this guy. Yeah, you can feel electric crowds, and sometimes the crowd can do things that affect you, but I think you're, when you're just, you got to get in that zone. And I remember one one fight in particular that, that the crowd really threw me off. And I was, I was we used to fight weight divisions. I was, I think, telling you the story the other day. Um, and then when you beat your weight division, they'd fight you up weight division. So there's one man standing. It was, that was it. It came down to one man. And so I fought lightweight. I was 150 pounds and I, uh, squared off with this guy who was 320 pounds. And when we, <laughs> when we squared up, um, for the final fight, the crowd laughed, the crowd laughed. I mean, it was just so crazy. This guy is just this mountain of a man and I'm 150 pounds across from him and the crowd laughed. And something inside of me just clicked and I'm like, it just fired me up. I'm like, no, you're not going to laugh at me. Like, no, no, I'm going to be the one laughing when this is over. And I knocked him out in the second round. Nice. And, it, <laughs> but it, it just, that crowd just spurred me and it wasn't, it wasn't a positive thing for me. It was almost negative. Like I took it as a challenge, you know, mm -hmm. but that was the one time in all my fighting that I felt like I actually interacted with the crowd where it changed something in me. Yeah. I just see the performance. Like I just, I would think that naturally it would mess with a, an athlete's mind to, or maybe not mess with it. And you're going to still get in there and perform. But when that crowd is in there two years down the road, when you're a headliner, that is like, I would think would take your performance to even a different level. It just seems like that the more electrifying, the more energy is going to breed into the athlete and, and get Charlie to make a better throw, a harder throw, even though you're going to do it the same, you know, all the time, whether they're in the seats or not. When it's Friday night and it's packed and you're in the first, you know, and you're playing the Dodgers in Rocky Stadium and it's packed and Kershaw's on the bump and you're walking up to the plate and the crowd's chanting your name that to me would spark more electrifying performance potential in any athlete, but I might be wrong. I just think empty and you're walking up there and you're facing Kershaw and you're just like, well, you know, like kind of looking like you're in a museum looking around, like where in the heck is everybody? Yeah. You can feel it for sure. Uh, and it's different, you know, it's different when all of a sudden you go to a playoff atmosphere and now it's, now it's, you know, now you're through the roof. Now you have a problem, like you're redlining and the game hasn't started yet. And it's like, I've got to draw back on my, years of experience and and be able to you know back off the rpms and bring it back into like a comfortable like cruising you know a cruising speed and 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 be able to calm down 
and, and not let the game speed up on me and get the best of me because of that situation. So I think that's one of those things that, you know, baseball players to, you know, have to do it, you know, two outs in the ninth and, and everybody's on their feet, you know, like if you get too geeked up, like that's not the best way to hit, like you got to be calm and relaxed and, and maybe the atmosphere helps you like really feel the energy and like really focus in and slow the game down. But if you don't bring it down to where you can use that and like funnel that focus that you're getting from the crowd, you know, then it's like everything's moving so fast that you can't, you know, you're not going to not going to be successful. Relive your first day in the big leagues for me when you got oh, called up. So nervous. So nervous that I flew in from wherever we were playing. I flew straight to San Diego, which is a great place to debut. You know, got there super late the night before. I don't know if I slept at all. Like, get to the park super early and then just, like, be super nervous all day. I was in the lineup, and I just remember being, like, nervous during batting practice. Just, like, so nervous that I would, you know. It's incredible how, you know, I play the game every day. Like, every day for my entire life, 24 years or whatever. And then I I go to play the exact same game when I'm at the top of my success at that time and and then all of a sudden every thought process changes just because of where you're playing it's unbelievable you know all of a sudden i'm worried about like missing ground balls or like you know like like little things like that or like i'm like i'm gonna you know forget which side of the plate to stand on you know like it's just like stuff that like you never play the game thinking about that and you know the day before but now all of a sudden i'm I'm thinking all these crazy thoughts i mean that's something that you have to learn to overcome and uh and I went, I mean, how were you accepted on the team Were the teammates, but you probably knew a lot of them coming up in the organization. You know, I knew, yeah, I knew a few of them and, and, you know, I was there because someone got hurt and that's how most guys get their first call up. And was Helton still there? Yeah. I played with Helton for a Todd's few, a few years. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed watching him go about it. And, and you know, I, I saw him more toward the end of his career and, uh, but he was still like undeniable talent. It's just, but his body got, you know, like that. Base, you know, baseball, baseball injuries and, and baseball is more of an accumulation. You know, it's, it's, you know, an overuse game. It's not blunt drama like, like fighting and football and that kind of thing. And so, you know, you can't get away from that if you take a, you know, 500 swings a day for 20 years like he did. Uh, Beautiful swings too. Yeah. He was a college football player too. Punter. Tennessee. He was a quarterback. UT, quarterback at UT. Yeah. UT. Him and Peyton were there Peyton. at the same time. Yeah, they were buddies. I thought that I thought that Peyton was the quarterback. But Peyton was the quarterback. I think Todd was the backup. But he also punted too, did he? I think I th- he might have. I have to research that. Relive your most memorable air. Oh, here's a good one. I'm in LA playing left field. I'm I'm like super young, and there's this. The left field line is, and every baseball park's different, right? It's not a universal octagon or a basketball court right it's uh it's different so this left field line for you know the fence hugs the line all the way down the left field line and then the corner is rounded and so this really you know like the it's like the first batter of the game super fast uh d gordon he's like one of the fastest guys in the league hits a ball right down the line pretty hard and so i'm going over there and you know, the foul line is right up next to the fence. So I get up next to the fence and try and like block this ball and it goes right through my legs and he hit it, he hit it hard enough and it's rolling on the warning track. And so I turn and run after it. And then the, 
the corner there, usually it's like a 90 degree corner and the ball will hit the corner and stop. Well, the corner's rounded. So it rolls down in the corner and like hits that, that rounded <laughs> fence. And ke- now it's rolling out towards the gap. And I go out there and pick it up. And as I pick it up, like the guy's like, Rounding third. Like rounding third. And I'm like, all right, I'll just throw him out at the plate. And then I tried to throw the ball like 350 feet to the plate. And it was like not even close. Home run. Error home run to start the game. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have to just like listen to the L.A. crowd. Just like wear you out. Is that that when you just pull your hat down? Yeah, you just want to crawl in a hole. Did you take your defense to your at bat or did you go up and hit a laser? I'm sure I was not very good for the next inning or two until I, I got it under control right there. If you if you got to talk to my 16 year old nephew, lefty, junior high school has talent. Let's just leave it at that. Everybody thinks their nephew or their son is the the next greatest thing. I get what it takes where you've gotten. What do you tell him to give realistic perspective of what he can do to go to the next level? Even if it's just junior college, is it, is it NCAA division one, or do you put it in a small scheme like that? Or if you want to make the big leagues, you need to start doing this. Is there any advice you give anybody? I would say play the game because you love it as much as you can. And I think that's what will ultimately carry you as far as you can go. Be a good teammate. Learn the lessons that are to be learned. You know, play it as much as you want to play it and do the best that you can at it and and make it your career. Like, if you, you know, if you want it, go get it. And, and know that there always will be someone better out there and that, you know, statistically, you're not, you're not going to make it. But if that doesn't matter to you, you have a chance to make it. You know, like like people tell you, oh, you're not, you know, like what are the chances of you making it? You're not going to make it. Even if you make it, you, what are you gonna, you're not going to stay there. Like it's just astronomical. It's, you know, like winning the lottery. Like chances are it's probably not going to happen. So do it your way, right? And, and and do it in such a way that you can be proud and, and look back and say, I I wouldn't change a thing. And And if you make it, you'll be proud of yourself. And if you don't make it, you'll still be proud of yourself. I like that. Yeah. And do you feel like you've been able to do that with your career? I feel like I haven't compromised a whole lot. You know, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty stubborn and I do things my way. And, you know, I, I, you know, I try to be a really good teammate and do, you know, do the right things by other people. But, uh, I'm, you know, I'm in charge of steering my ship and, and, you know, I've had some help from the big guy upstairs, I think. And, and I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but, but I, you know, I'm, I'm proud of my path, and and I hope it continues in, in that way. That's awesome. Best baseball movie ever made. I like Bull Durham. Better than Major League. <sighs> I got Sandlot, Bull Durham, like duking it out in the top spot. Sandlot. I, I mean, that speaks Sandlot. to the kid in me. You know, like that's oh, where yeah. we initially like fell in love with the game. You're killing me, Smalls. Yeah, I mean, it's. I it's, love it. it. You know, it's those two. I love Major League, um, but I got Major League in third place, unfortunately. You're in good shape. Obviously, nutrition plays a role in this. Are you a strict eater? Do you eat whatever you want and your caloric intake can be through the roof at any given time? Is your metabolism through the roof or do you have to scientifically break down every meal? I have a very fast metabolism and used to have to try so hard to put on weight when I was younger. Like I would, you know, even now I'll drink a protein shake right before I go to bed and make sure I, you know, eat right when I wake up and, you know, eat every three hours or you know but but now i in season i can pretty much eat whatever i want because i'm burning so much that i just uh, i really have a problem like taking in enough 
and then I'm starting to get old enough to where in the off season it's like I you know I can't eat that same way like I need to be conscientious of of what it is I'm eating when I'm eating not eat excessively you know I think more and more I I look at when I'm eating now like you know like do I have fuel in my system before I tackle a workout and then do I have protein immediately thereafter do I have enough uh, nutrients in my body to sleep for nine hours. Um, and then when I wake up, it's like, I, you know, I haven't eaten in, in nine or 10 hours. Like I need to eat right now. Like I'm looking at it as more of like, I'm trying to keep my fire burning and keep my body like soaking up nutrients. And so it's, I don't get too scientific with that. Five years after you retire, the phone rings, you get the call. Who's the first person in your speech that night that you thank for where you've gotten in the sport? I'm going to thank my parents. For sure. My, my dad, uh, you know, coached me in little league and, and mom was my biggest fan, most supportive, always the, you know, the even keel, uh, member of the family. And I've had some really good, you know, my junior college coach was, was pretty influential and, um, you know, there's some coaches sprinkled throughout and, uh, but mostly I would say like my, you know, my network had a, a, a pretty heavy hand and, allowing me to have some success being from atlanta and you had to you had to have an ab and you had to get a hit do you face maddox smoltz or glavin who do you think you, you know, get the hit off the easiest probably not smoltz he's got such good stuff i you know i think it's got to be maddox or glavin and i i you know i think i'll probably go with Maddox because he's right-handed and I know that I'm going to get a first pitch strike and I would, I would swing at the first pitch against Maddox. That's my game plan. Even if it's the cutting fastball that yeah, starts on your no, front because knee? It's, you know, it's going to be a strike. I'm swinging. I'm blind swinging at the first pitch from Maddox. You're an alumni of a Georgia tech. Is Garcia Parra the best player to come out of Gar uh, Georgia tech that you know of? Did your college numbers compare to his? Where does where does Garcia? No, Parra Garcia's work? Parra's college number is way better than mine. Um, I'm gonna say Mark Teixeira, maybe. Mark Teixeira is pretty high up there. Jason Veritek's pretty high up there. Um, God, I forgot Veritek went to Georgia yeah, Tech. There's, what a, a stud. there's a, quite a few uh, successful ball players out of Georgia Tech. If somebody gave you you didn't have an option. You had to take your next check and buy a car, an automobile. What does Charlie buy? Is he a Ford truck guy with a toolbox in the back, or is he a is he a minivan because of the the growth of the families coming up? What, what's going to happen? <laughs> um, man, I'm buying the exact same truck that I have right now, and it's a Toyota Tundra, and it's it is made in Texas. I checked on that, made in Texas. Um, that thing is awesome, and I and I really like it. Have you seen the Platinum Edition ones? So, I think it's is that where it has like the nice interior and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I I would get something like that, like a fancy interior that reminds me of a baseball glove, and and uh, you know I'm just I'm really I'm really happy with that truck right now. But I'm not a big like I don't I don't need like cool stuff. I just need stuff that works. You know, like I I doesn't have to be the best. Um, I got some questions for you though. I got one more for you, and then okay. you can shoot away. All right. Doesn't matter who it is. Who do you going coming up as a baseball fan and as a baseball player? Who do you want in center field when you look to your right of all time? All time. Well, I feel like King Griffey Jr. is the you know the 
the cop out answer, but I'm going to, you know, I'll go from my childhood. Um, going to have to have Andrew in there. Yeah. Well, Andrew Jones, you know, oh man, Andrew Jones. I forgot about Andrew Jones. I was going to go to like a Marquise Grissom, uh, Otis Nixon, Kenny Lofton played some, some center field for the Braves, I think. Yep. Yeah, I probably watched as a kid growing up. I probably watched Marquise Grissom and Andrew Jones play the most center field. Like those are probably my two guys. I would have thought. I would have guessed you would say Andrew just because he was so prolific with the Braves. I think he played his whole career there, did he? No, he it, at the end. I mean, he played the bulk of it there, and then he bounced around. Like he did played he for New it? York there. Oh, like, he did go the, the last like, right. year or two. But he I mean he's a Braves player for sure. All right, go ahead, but dude, don't try to stump me. No, no, no. I mean, this is. I'm so not this good. Is, you know, this is more duck duck hunting podcast. I just got to, I feel like we got to, I got to get my duck hunting questions in. You know, you guys are pretty good at it. Um, well, then hold on a second. <laughs> this has been another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. Charlie Blackman, please check this man out. Right fielder, Colorado Rockies, National League West. I haven't really studied how the team's going to be this year. I was a little disappointed in the team last year because I had high hopes. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what I happened. I was too. We, I want to do this again. Maybe I can catch you on the road on an off day. I'm not going to mess with you on a game day, but maybe we can do it again. I'm going to be in Denver several times. Um, I hope that this thing that they call the coronavirus goes away in a hurry and you guys get to <laughs> get back on the field. Charlie, thank you very much for being a guest. It was an awesome talk. We are going to transition. Y'all check out the Foul Life podcast coming up for Charlie Blackman's questions to me regarding duck hunting. Tom, hit that button. This is... Leith Lofton, what you gonna do when the money's all gone? We're all equal, that's what I think. I don't believe heaven has a bank. Make good use of your time on earth and don't make a dollar bill all this world. Cause I'd rather be poor living off in a hole than rich as hell without a soul. Life on earth won't last too long So what you gonna do when the money's all gone I'd rather be poor living off in a hole Than rich as hell without a soul Life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone Say life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do Honey's all gone.